Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for um, the opportunity to gather as believers and worship your name. Lord, thank you for the, the time of worship through song that we just had. Lord, I pray for this next time of diving into your word. Lord, I pray that this would be a time of worship as well. Lord, that our hearts would be um, just open and, and ready to hear from uh, the words in your scripture. Jesus, I pray that you would speak through Kevin this morning, or that you would um, just grant him the ability to speak clearly um, and straight to our hearts as we need to hear. Um, Father, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 4. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're glad you're here. Um, hope you guys are ready for uh, Thanksgiving. I just kind of give you guys a little bit of an, an update where, where we're going. Um, we'll be finishing up Romans chapter 4 this morning, and then we'll start up Romans chapter 5 next week, and we should get through probably 11 or 15 verses next week. And, and then what we'll do for the month of December is we're going to take a break from the book of Romans, and we'll be doing a series um, on Advent. For some of you guys may be familiar uh, with that, depending on what kind of church tradition you grew up in or not. But the, the purpose behind that will be to kind of prepare ourselves uh, for Christmas, and uh, trying to, you know, really reflect on Jesus' arrival, what, what that meant, both in the, for where, uh, us as we look into the Old Testament, but also into the New Testament, and really kind of try to reflect on what the last 2,000 years of human history um, have uh, really given us since Jesus' arrival here on this earth. And so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll do a good job of kind of preparing our hearts for Christmas and what Christmas is really supposed to be. Um, if you're like me, you're already irritated that Christmas is coming because this is what my wife and my, my parents do every year. They come to me and they're like, okay, Kevin, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, don't need anything. Don't want anything, don't need anything. So then obviously that irritates them because they, like they don't like that answer. It's like, you know, I, I really, you know, what I want for Christmas is to not be bothered. 
about what I want for Christmas. Like, Christmas is supposed to be this time of, like, enjoyment and reflection and thankfulness on what God has done for us. And it's become, uh, because of capitalism, amongst other things in our country, a time to be excited about what gifts you're going to get. And uh, I'm not really that excited about that. And so, hopefully here, right, we as a, as a church family, as a church body, will uh, come together and kind of center our hearts and our minds around preparing for worshiping Jesus because that's what this time is supposed to represent and reflect the time for us to kind of reflect on Christ's arrival. And so Romans chapter 4, last week we kind of looked at what Paul was arguing and and he made this argument, and and really it's kind of a two-part argument, right? The first part being this, that justification, that means being declared not guilty before God, is solely by faith in the work of Jesus alone. That was kind of Paul's first premise towards the end of Romans 3 and into into Romans chapter 4. And then last week, the specific argument he kind of made was um, that justification has always been by faith in God and nothing else. That, That God declares us not guilty in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, pre Christ and post Christ, by faith in Him. By faith in him alone is what justifies us. Now, Paul anticipated, obviously, especially his Jewish audience, that they're not going to like that answer. They're not going to like that argument. They're not going to like that presentation. So what he said is, okay, you don't believe me. Here's two examples in the Old Testament of men who were declared righteous by God because of their faith and nothing else, right? And so the first example, and we saw this last week, was Abraham. Right? And we, we saw that he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, and he says this, right? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Right? So, so that Abraham believed in the promise that God made to him that he would have a son and that he'd be the father of many nations and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Right? And it says that Abraham believed him and that it counted to him as righteousness. And we went into full depth about what covenants looked like and what God had done during that time. But we, we saw right, that Abraham was saved apart from any works of his own, but solely by trusting in God's promise to him and believing that God was able to do what he said he was going to do. And then we saw that the second person that, that Paul kind of shares with us as an example that righteousness comes by faith is David, right? And he quotes Psalm 31, and we saw that in Psalm 31, David says this, right, that, that blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and whose the Lord does not count his sin against him. Right, that David, right, the, the king of kings in the Old Testament, right, Israel's first, second king, excuse me, and probably their best king, it, who is called throughout Scripture a man after God's own heart, says that he knows that righteousness only comes by faith in God not counting their sins against them. And so... As we finished up last week, right, the question we kind of finished up last week was Paul saying, now, there are certain things that Israel has been doing over the course of the last couple thousand years that are a part of walking with God, and and there's been some confusion that's kind of creeped in from that. And he said the the first one is this, right, was, was the working out of Abraham's faith was circumcision a the sign of that? Was was part of Abraham's faith him being circumcised? 
Did Abraham need to be circumcised to be, to be saved? That's kind of the, the question that, a, that Paul was trying to answer last week. And Paul's answer to that was no. Right? That, that God gave the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham responds to that promise and believes. God declares him righteous. And then two chapters later when you get to Genesis chapter 17 is when the sign of circumcision is given. And so Paul's kind of premise is this, that justification is by faith in God alone, not as a result of works, even when it comes to things that God has commanded for us to do. That circumcision, while important, does not have any bearing on our justification. Right? And I talked about last week how the, that the sign of the covenant now, right, one of the things we see that is, the, is, is baptism. And baptism, while being extremely important and a command of Christ when he gave the great commission to his disciples, is just that. It's a sign. It's an outward display of what God has already done inwardly. And that throughout the course of Scripture, right, we see that justification, being declared not guilty, being adopted as sons and daughters, is by faith in God alone. And more specifically, after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, it's in Christ alone. So this raises a second question that we have to answer, and it's what Paul's going to focus in on today, right? Because we need to remember this. Paul's audience, right, the Gentiles aren't going to have a ton of problems with the things that, that Paul's been saying throughout the, his letter to, to the church at Rome so far. They're, they're, they're not going to be struggling with the things that he's been saying, right? They, they understand their sin. They, they understand kind of the, the, the baseline arguments that, that Paul is making, and they hear the gospel, and they're like, oh, wow, like just like knowing the true God and trusting in what his son did for us, that sounds amazing. Like, you know, y- yes, I'll respond to that. But Paul's Jewish audience is struggling big time with with what Paul has been sharing up until this point. Because remember this, right? Paul's claim that God declares us not guilty by faith in Jesus alone is a big philosophical and theological shift for what they've been taught. Right? Over the course of time, they've been taught, one, to observe the law and prophets, but they've also been taught that God saves them based upon their adherence to the Old Testament laws and rituals. And so they're thinking through things like, you know, am I keeping the Ten Commandments? Have I kept the Sabbath? And am I continuing to honor God on the Sabbath? Am I observing holidays and keeping them holy as well? Am I observing the temple rituals? Am I, you know, observing the Passover? And are we as a people observing the Day of Atonement and offering up to God the sacrifices the way that we're supposed to? Or am I going through the purification process of bathing when I come to the temple? All these things that the Old Testament declares I must do. Am I following this properly so that I might be justified or holy in the sight of God? These are the the questions that the Jews ask themselves daily. And Paul has been saying up to this point, look, guys, that stuff is good, but it won't make you acceptable to God. Right, those, those things don't make you acceptable to God. The same way that having a great family, a good job, and being a pretty good person doesn't make you acceptable to God in 2017. That we have some cultural norms that, that we have created, 
right? Things that, that we believe are, are good things to be doing over the course of time, and yet the scriptures tell us that none of that is what makes us acceptable to God. And then Paul moves on to say this, that if circumcision isn't what saved Abraham, neither was the law. That if Abraham was saved simply by trusting in the promise that God had given him, and circumcision was simply a sign of that, that the law is not what justifies him either, right? Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let, let, we're going to kind of work through those verses slowly, and we're going to work up through verse 17, and then we're going to kind of take a different direction because the text kind of changes a little bit. But, but think through this. Right, Paul is saying this. The promise to Abraham and his offsprings is that the heir of the world, right, all the nations of the world will be blessed through one of Abraham's descendants, through, through his heir, and that... That promise comes by faith that Abraham trusted in God's promise. So he's saying this, look, you know, at Christmas time, right, you're going to get some gifts. And you're not going to have done anything for those gifts. And here's one of the things that's kind of strange, right? How many of you guys grew up believing in Santa Claus? Okay, about half the room, right? You know, one of the great moralistic tools of parents over the last couple hundred years, right, is Santa Claus, right? Like, you know, Santa, you know, he's kind of like God, Right, think, think about it, right? He's got, a, he's got a beard, which most of us who, you know, dreamed of God growing up, we kind of believed he was the guy in the sky with a beard, right? And Santa, who by all accounts is omniscient because he knows if you've been naughty or nice, right? Which, by the way, if we're completely honest with ourselves, every kid is naughty, right? And, like, Everyone's on the naughty list. I don't know why Santa even needs to write the list down. Like every child over the course of the last year has been bad. And so, you know, but Santa, he's omniscient. He knows what everyone's doing. He's also kind of omnipresent because otherwise, I don't know how he gets down every chimney in, on earth without spontaneously combusting because he's moving at a speed that defies physics. And so, you know, here we have Santa, right? He's, he's going from house to house. He's leaving these gifts, right? But parents have convinced us that it's based upon our own performance. Now, what Paul is saying about God here, though, is that God is making this promise to give the gift of salvation to us, but it's not based upon our performance, that here, you know, here we have Christmas time coming up, and the things that we are told all the time, the things that, that we grow up believing is in our own works and our own merit and the things we do. Even, even as children, right? We tell our children, we give them some sort of complex that they have to be good enough or they're going to get a lump of coal and a stocking. By the way, my aunt did that to one of my cousins one year, and it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> My, my, my cousin opens up her stockings. We're all pulling out candy and all these toys. And she opens it up and just shakes it. And this piece of coal drops out of the stocking, right? One of the few parents bold enough to do what they actually say Santa is going to do, right? By the way, if any of you still believe in Santa in here this morning and I've blown his cover, I apologize. 
It's not real. It was mom and dad. But here's the thing, right? I'm going to have some parent angry with me later. Like, how did you ruin Christmas for my kid? I'm like petrified that Gideon's going to do that at school this year because we don't do Santa at our house. That, that Paul is saying, look, the promise of salvation, right? This promise of this offspring, of this heir who will bless the entire world right, comes through faith, and it started with Abraham, and he's explained that already, but he says this, look, somewhere along the way, Israel, you have lost sight of how Abraham came to be adopted by God and declared righteous. Somewhere along the way, you've come to believe that it's the work of circumcision, or that it's the works of the law that, that were given to Moses that, that somehow declare you righteous in my sight, right? And Paul mentions this because, look, if salvation, if being declared righteous comes by the law, right, there are some really important things we need to know, right? Think about this. We, we know that Abraham was not saved by works of the law. It should be common sense. First of all, right, let's start with this, right? First of all, <laughs> what God says in Genesis chapter 15 is that his faith has declared him as righteous. But let's, let's add some, some layers on top of that, right? If Abraham— w- like, how could Abraham be saved by the law if the law had not even come yet? If we, if we understand, right, the law was given to Moses when he was on top of the mountain, and we know, meanwhile, Aaron was down at the bottom of the mountain leading God's people astray, worshiping a golden calf, right? There's, there's all these crazy things that Israel's doing, and yet God continues in his mercy to give the law to Moses. And this happens 500 years after Abraham. And so if you live by the law as your means of justification, you cannot receive the covenant promise to Abraham because that is not how the original recipient was justified. That if you want to trust in your performance and your obedience, you will never be justified because the original promise to Abraham was not received that way. Right? What Paul says is this, right? If justification comes by the law, faith is what? Null. It's useless. There's no, there's no need for faith. And that the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed is void, meaning it's no good. Meaning, so basically, right, what Israel has been saying, hey, look, we need to perform, we need to be circumcised on the eighth day, we need to observe the temple rites and rituals, we need to do all these things. What they've basically been doing in practice, even though Abraham is the father of their faith, by practice they've been saying this. Genesis 15 is a waste of time and a lie because God doesn't deal with us in that that way. That what might have been good enough for Abraham is not sufficient for us. And Paul obviously is like, we've got a major problem here because we have a major disconnect theologically in understanding how God relates to you and I. Right, as, as the point he made earlier, the, the number one reason this is a problem to begin with is that no one can fulfill the law. That this has been the argument from the outset of Romans. If it was up to you and I to earn God's favor, we would never be saved. But if you look at verse 15, right, Paul says something that's a, that's a little weird about the law. The way this is worded in the ESV is really, really strange, but I'm going to read it to you. 
For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, you know, what, what is Paul saying is the purpose of the law then in, in, in light of understanding what Jesus has done and understanding that we're justified by faith in Christ? Paul is clearly not saying, sin all you want, you are free without the law. That's not what he's saying, right? If you read the second half of that, uh, verse 15, you might start getting some weird theology mixed in there, saying, ah, yeah, I can do whatever I want, because where there is no law, if I don't believe in the law, there is no transgression. That's not what he's saying. Let me try to kind of unpack some of this for you. First of all, let's start with what the word transgression means, Okay. The word transgression in the Greek means a deliberate knowing and attempt to cross a boundary that has been set. Okay, so it's not just, right, sinning, it's deliberately sinning. That's what the word transgression means. So here's what Paul is making. He's making a differentiation between understanding sin. He's saying, look, the law does one thing, it brings wrath. And the the reason that it brings wrath is because it reveals our sin to us. But if you do not have the law right? There is no transgression. He didn't say there is no sin. He said there is no transgression, meaning that there is no deliberate disobedience towards the law of God. Let me give you an example, right? My kids, two little boys, they do things all the time that I don't like. It's like their, their goal in life sometimes is just to drive me crazy. Jackie, all the time, like I'm sitting there and I'm like, I want to institute a rule and I'm sitting there and Jackie's like, you know, they're just kids. You can't really, like, make them not do that. And, but all the time, right, they're just doing stuff that's crazy. But in our house, we have two rules, and kind of every other rule you could ever think of falls underneath these two rules, right? And if, if I brought Gideon in here right now and gave him a microphone and said, Gideon, what are the two rules of our house? Here's what he said. Number one, have fun. And number two, be safe. And number two always trumps number one. The problem is, is, like, my kids have no problem with number one. Like, like, this is the best rule ever. This is fantastic. The problem is this rule number two. Right? Rule number two <laughs> creates some issues in our home. Because my kids are constantly breaking it. Like, sometimes fun is diving headfirst off the top of a bookshelf. Or like Gideon's current favorite game is to like play tackle football on our tile floor at all times with Josiah, who is two and a half and can kind of barely walk on his own, so he's not really much of a tackling dummy anyway. And so all the time it's like, no, 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 we're not doing that, we're not doing that, I know that's fun, but it's not safe, we're not doing it here, right? Find a way to do it, and so, you know, as all kids do, he kind of pushes the line, if Josiah's here, he dives at him, but doesn't touch him. Right? All the time he's kind of pushing the agenda, and my kids are constantly breaking rule number two, but it is not a transgression until I have expressly given directions to them not to do something. Now, once I have told them, do not jump on the couch. Do not jump on the bed. Do not try to climb into the stove. By the way, that is a rule in our house because Josiah has tried to break that rule. It is not a transgression until I have given them that command, and then when they disobey that, Discipline comes in. That oftentimes they can trespass and they can even break rule number two, but if there's not been a specific rule laid down, hey, don't do that because it's unsafe, we try to show some some grace and some leeway with them. So Paul says the law brings wrath and reveals transgression. 
That's it. The law can do no more than that. So the point of the law is that it's a diagnostic tool or test, as I said all the way back when we were in the book of Galatians back in the spring. Right? Remember my example? That the Bible, the Bible kind of has this thing going for it, especially in regards to the law. That it reveals our sin to us, but it doesn't save us. It's kind of like if you're going to the hospital and you're getting some kind of test run. Right? If you've broken a bone, what are they going to do when you get to the hospital? They're going to take an x-ray. Right? That is the diagnostic tool right, that will display to you and I whether or not we've actually broken a bone or not. Now, let's say you go into the ER and you get, in, you get into the ER, right, and they take you in, they give you an x-ray, right, and the doctor pulls up the x-ray and put, throws that photo up on that little light and says, okay, looking at it, yeah, you definitely broke your arm. You're like, okay, what's the plan now? He's like, well, we're going to take another x-ray. Like, well, I mean, you already took an x-ray. Like, what's the purpose of that? Well, you got a broken bone, so we need another x-ray. Well, I want to get treated. (laughs) I actually want my arm to heal. What what are we going to do here? The doctor continues to say, take more x-rays. You know that the doctor, one, probably shouldn't have a medical license, but two, right, doesn't understand, right, how treatment works. Right, because an x-ray can only reveal a break. It can't treat a break. The law can only reveal your sin to you. It can't treat your sin. Right? This is the point that Paul has been making over and over again. That God's law was given to reveal our sinfulness, not fix our sinfulness. The same way an x-ray reveals a broken bone but cannot heal a broken bone. That over and over again we see Paul kind of making this argument. Our Bible shows us our sin, but it does not save us. It reveals to us who we are and who God is, but it does not save us from the reality of who we are. And so when you get to verse 16, look at what Paul says. That is why it depends on faith. See that that line right there? That the law only brings wrath and can only reveal transgression but that the promise of salvation depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The law cannot save, and that is why it depends on faith in God. Your performance cannot save you. It is only by faith in God. And the promise rests on God's grace, which means it's his choice and his promise and his performance which saves you, not yours. Paul says, look, we, we, anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection as being sufficient to count them as righteousness, you are sharing in the promise of Abraham. That your salvation is secure. Guys, this is why Christians sound so crazy. Because of 
doctrines like this, I always tell, like whenever I'm on campus, my favorite time to do evangelism is around Easter time because people will actually kind of engage you a little bit more. And I say like, Christmas is that, I mean, Easter is that crazy time of year for Christians. Like we're just nuts. Because we're making sure that we're reflecting on what Jesus' resurrection from the dead really accomplished. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the faith and hope that Jesus rose from the dead, there is no hope that you and I are justified before God. In the same way, pretty much everything that Christians claim to believe is countercultural. Right? We, we believe that we cannot earn God's favor. That we're completely incapable of doing that. We believe that we're saved not by our own work, but by resting in the work of someone else, Jesus. Could you imagine that? Right? Imagine going in for a job interview. Oh, you know, Mr. Anderson, it's nice to meet you. You know, we, we, we kind of only invited you in for this interview because your resume was someone else's resume. Yeah. So, like, you know, do you want to, like, tell us, like, why you're qualified? Well, that guy's qualified. He'll vouch for me. Could, could you imagine, like, would anyone ever hire you in that, in that manner? Right? It's not, it's not how things operate, right? If you had applied to the University of Florida and sent someone else's high school transcript, how would that have worked out for you? Not well. Right? We're constantly based up, we are constantly judged based upon our own performance. And yet when it comes to the God of the universe, he looks at us and says, have you trusted in what I've done through my son? Because that is the only way you will be justified. The same way that Abraham trusted that God was going to do what he promised, Christians for thousands of years have trusted in God and that has saved them from their sin and despair. They've trusted in Christ, in Christ alone. It sounds foolish to an unbelieving world. Right? The gospel, as Paul says, is a stumbling block for those who do not believe. It's foolish to those who try to get to God by philosophy and religion. And it's a stumbling block to Jews because it spits in the face of their own theology. And yet God has chosen to make foolish the wisdom of man by choosing to save us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, not only does Paul share this example of Abraham with us because he wants us to understand how justification is obtained. This is the whole reason why he's sharing this example of Abraham in the first place. He's like, look, you're justified by faith in Christ the same way that, Ab that Abraham was justified by faith in God. But also, by looking at Abraham, we can understand what the working out of that faith can look like. That consider what Paul is going to say in the remainder of chapter 4. He's going to kind of display five things for us to look at on how Abraham displayed what it means to walk out our faith in God and kind of how that can manifest itself. All right, so look at this, right? Number one, by faith, Abraham over time learned what it meant to fully trust 
in the promises of God beyond what he felt and how reality appeared to him at the time. That, that by faith, over time, Abraham learned what it meant to trust in God despite his circumstances. Right, look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Right, here's what Paul's saying, that Abraham trusted in God despite the fact that it was physically impossible for his wife to become pregnant. He looked at his circumstances, and he said, you know what, God promised me a son though, and the God who created the universe can do whatever he wants. That God is in the business of doing things that are impossible. I'm gonna continue to trust him instead. I'm gonna trust him despite what reality tells me right now. Right? Many of us have these types of stories, right? Jackie and I have walked through this ourselves. Right? After Gideon was born, right, Jackie and I felt like, you know, God was calling us to have another child, and so Jackie got pregnant, and, you know, a couple weeks in, she miscarried with our second child, right? And so here we believed that God was telling us that we were going to have more children, and, and then, you know, right, right in, the, in the middle of that, and, you, and you're experiencing this great joy of expecting another child, right? That child passes away, and the pain that comes from that is unimaginable, Yet we continued to trust that God wasn't done yet. That he was going to continue to bring us more children. Right? And then he brings that child along. Right? And, and we have this beautiful, almost three-year-old boy, Josiah. In the midst of our hurt and our pain and the reality telling us how terrible things are, right? God brings this son to us. Right? And then that son has complications, right? He has epilepsy, right? And we're walking through all that, and yet God is faithful in the midst of all that because God is good no matter what reality says, and that God's promises remain true even in the midst of that reality. That God's promise to Abraham was believable even if the circumstances that surrounded Abraham and Sarah made it not so. Number two, by faith, right? Abraham shows us this, that we can focus on what we know to be true about God, and that will increase our faith. Right, look at what he says verses 20, verses, in verse 20 and verse 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Right, in the midst of his circumstances, right, which made belief hard, Abraham, instead of despairing or instead of trying to make things happen on his own and earn God's favor, continued instead to rest in the promises that God had given him and to rehearse those. E even when Abraham, right, tried to take matters into his own hands, it was still centered around his trust in the promises of God. Because he rested and trusted in what God had promised to him. Number three, he put on display to you and I that we can trust God at his word. Right, he says in verse 21, God was able to do what he promised. Right, ever had a moment of despair in walking with the Lord as a disciple of Christ? Right, specific, mo most of us, 
tend to have these moments of despair when we're staring our own sin down. Right? We'll ask ourselves questions like, am I, am I really saved? Right? Does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Did Christ really die for me? Is God really going to give Abraham a child in the midst of his disobedience at times, his rebellion, and the physical situation that Abraham and Sarah are found in? And Abraham displays to us over and over again, who does the promise rest on? For Abraham, it was God. For you and I, it is God. And what God the Father has secured for you and I in the work of Jesus Christ. That only by Christ are you and I saved. Number four, what Abraham kind of displays to us is that his faith grew over time. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. With Abraham's ups and Abraham's downs, he continued to trust in God and his faith actually grew to where he trusted the promise more later than he did in the beginning. Right? The best part of being a follower of Jesus is when things get hard and you feel like throwing in the towel when God shows up in the midst of your helplessness, he's that much more real to you because he's there. Right? I've been a follower of Jesus Christ for almost 12 years now. And one of the things that's so amazing to me as I continue to walk with Jesus is that I look back, you know, most of us, if we came to Christ later in life, we, most of us tend to have like this like, kind of like mountaintop experience in the beginning. Right? It's kind of like, oh, like, like where it clicks and you understand the gospel and your faith and your trust is placed in him. But that was just a spark for me to a much deeper and real understanding of God's faithfulness to me. As I've seen God change my life and put sin to death, and I've seen God's faithfulness in the midst of my own sin that over time my faith is grown and in him more praise and glory and honor are given. Because he who has begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. That is the promise that God has given to you and I in Christ and your faith grows because you see his faithfulness to you the same way Abraham did. Number five, and lastly, maybe what I, what I think is maybe the coolest thing to kind of pull out of all this is we get to see what real faith looks like. Think about this, right? Abraham is the example of faith that Paul is sharing here. Guys, Abraham is not st some stalwart of perfection. Far from it. Right, right, think, think about him for a second. Right, reflect on who Abraham is. Right, he had some really high highs. Right, we mentioned some of this last week. He, he left Ur and listened to God and left his family and trusted him the entire time to, to take him to the, the, the land that God had promised him. Right, he trusted in the promise that God gave him that he was gonna have a, a, a child and that, that child was gonna eventually be the offspring that would bless the entire world. He trusted in God to save anyone that was righteous in Sodom and save his nephew Lot. 
Right? There were these huge promises here. That's one of the, like if you read that story, right, when, when, when God and the angels kind of come along and meet Abraham outside the camp, right, and they feed them, and then they, they, God's kind of like, what are you guys up to? And like, well, we're on our way to Sodom to destroy it because of its wickedness. Right? And Abraham's kind of like, whoa, whoa, my, you know, Lot's there. Right? Will you, will you save any of the righteous? You notice how, like, what would most of us do in that situation? We would run off to Sodom to warn them. Yet Abraham stays by at, behind at the camp because he trusts that God will do what he has promised to save the righteous. And Lot is saved. And you, so you see all these moments of faith where Abraham actually trusts in God to do what he says he's going to do. And then we see some really low lows. Right, we see Abraham, when he moves to a, a new location, literally giving his wife away to another man and, and claiming that she's his sister. We see that in the midst of understanding the promise of a son, he takes Hagar as his wife to try to continue and make that promise happen. What we can see from the life of Abraham is the same thing we can see as a follower of Jesus Christ if you've been one for any season of time. That every Christian will display moments of great faith and moments of severe lack of faith. And yet Paul, sharing Abraham as our example, should bring you and I great hope because God keeps his promise to Abraham despite even the level of Abraham's faith. And we can trust God and his promises to us all the more for that. Right, Tim Keller says this in regards to Abraham's faith. He says this, the life of faith is not the perfect life. It is the life which clings on to what God has said he will do and which sees struggles, joys, and failures as a means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. That is what faith is about, a deeper trust and understanding and knowing of God and his promises. That promise, Paul reiterates it at the end of chapter four, look at it. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Right, the promise of justification came both to Abraham but also for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, he says that Christ was delivered up for our sin and raised for our justification. There is no other way by which you can be saved. Whether you are on a high high right now, right, where you feel like trusting in God is super easy, or you're at a low low where you feel like you're Job and you're barely hanging on. Here's the beautiful thing that you can rehearse and remind yourself of. Your justification and mine 
rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not ours. That no matter how much faith you may think you cling to right now, it is the work of Jesus Christ by, that saves you. Simply trust in him. And that is how God has been working since the beginning of the promise to Abraham. That we're saved by him, not ourselves. Here in a moment, we're going to take communion. And here's what I would invite you to do today. If, you're, if you are a professing follower of Jesus here this morning, that you would view communion as, a, as an act of faith and worship. Do you know that every time you take communion, here's what you're displaying. You're coming to the communion table, and here's what you're saying before God as you, as you take the elements. God, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I've transgressed. I know the law, and I've broken it anyway. Yet you sent your own son to die in my place. And by taking the bread and the grape juice, what you're doing is saying, by Christ's flesh and blood poured out for me, I by faith am entrusting that your wrath was satisfied in him and that I am justified in his resurrection. It's an act of faith. Taking communion is an act of faith. It's an act of trusting and declaring that you believe in what Christ has done. If you're a Christian this morning, reflect on that and then come up here and worship God and take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, what are you waiting for? If you believe that God is real, if he exists, if there is someone that has spoken all of this into existence, right, who formed you and made you, if he is perfect and all-knowing and all-powerful, the Bible says this, you cannot earn his favor and that you and I stand before him guilty sinners. And yet that same God gave his only son to declare you righteous and adopt you as his sons and daughters. Would you today, by repentance, confess your sin, declare that God is right, that you are a sinner, and that Christ died for you, and place your faith and trust in him alone. It is the only way. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, his entire life is devoted around this, making an appeal that if you have not trusted in Christ, to please surrender and trust him. I make that appeal to you this morning, that by faith over and over and over again, you would trust in Christ and nothing else. May that be true of us daily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are good and that you have made a way where there was no way. Father, as we take communion this morning, my prayer is that a deep abiding trust in you would continue. Holy Spirit, if there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in you and the work of Jesus Christ for their salvation, God, I pray that you would make clear to them the magnitude of their sin and the magnitude of what you have done on the cross and that you would save them. 
And Lord, that you would surround them with other men and women who love you so that they might grow as disciples and grow in faith the same way Abraham did. God, thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. As we approach a holiday centered around giving thanks, we're thankful for family and food, shelter, jobs, school, so many things we have to be thankful for. May we most of all rest in thankfulness that we are justified by the grace that you have bestowed upon us in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. And I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ.